There's um, an old uh, piece of English idiom you don't hear much uh, these days. Um, it's the phrase to don the mantle of someone. It means to take on their role or their status or, uh, and indeed their authority and, in, uh, and indeed their, their, their agenda. Um, the phrase actually comes from the story of Elijah and his successor, Elisha, in the King James Bible. So many phrases came into the English language through the King James. In 1 Kings chapter 2, you find Elijah, who is, who is a great prophet, being taken up into heaven, and he leaves behind his cloak, which in the King James is his mantle. And Elisha takes up Elijah's cloak, and uh, it seems in the, in the process acquires all the, the, the prophetic powers of his illustrious predecessor. And I actually called this series in uh, Matthew 10, Donning the Mantle, if you saw in the programme, because something very similar is happening in Matthew chapter 10. This time it's not Elijah passing on his power and authority and mandate to Elisha, it's actually Jesus passing these things on to his disciples. As the story of Matthew unfolds, you find in, in Matthew chapters 1 to 9, we're introduced to Jesus and at every point uh, he has unquestionable authority, particularly um, if you know it, in the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew 5 to 7, he is shown to have unique authority to teach. And then immediately in Matthew 8 and 9, he, he demonstrates his authority to, to heal, in fact, his authority over all the powers of, uh, uh, of nature. And then that, in that context, you see, Matthew 10 verse 1 is an enormous surprise. Jesus called his twelve disciples to him, and gave them authority. And actually, Matthew 10 verse 1 anticipates the very end of Matthew's Gospel, where Matthew is going with his Gospel, because there we find the risen Jesus saying, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, therefore go and make disciples of all nations. So, so Matthew 10, in a sense, is the first anticipation of that, that great transfer of the mandate from Jesus himself to his people. A mandate that remains with God's people today. We have donned the mantle of Jesus, says the Bible. So in Matthew 10 then, um, which we're going to look at over a number of weeks now, we're, we're going to see um, uh, uh, what it means to be people who are the body of Christ on earth, who have inherited that ministry of Jesus that he began. But this week, we're going to be leading just up to Matthew 10 to um, uh, see what immediately precedes it. Matthew sets the scene in the last four verses of Matthew 10. And at the beginning, Jesus is doing all the work. 
Jesus, verse 99, went through all the towns and villages, teaching in the synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, healing every disease and illness. But as we know, by Matthew 10, verse 1, he will be passing the work on to his disciples. What's, what's the pivot then? It's the pivot that we're going to look at in verses 36 and uh, to, to 38 that, um, that, that triggers Jesus at this point for the first time to pass on the mandate to his disciples. First thing we're going to look at is what Jesus saw that made him do this. He saw, first of all, says Matthew, the hidden state of people. Verse 36, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. They were harassed, they were bothered, they were troubled, they were stirred up, they were not at peace, they were helpless. The, the word always has a sense of being, of being thrown. But here it, it, it seems to mean thrown to the ground. Matthew uses the image of, of sheep without the shepherd. And the problem um, mainly for, sheep, for shepherdless sheep in Matthew's day was not just that they wandered and got uh, uh, lost, but um, that as they wandered, they would be prey to wolves and other wild animals. Now, some of you know I, I, I grew, grew up on a, on a farm and I have seen sheep who have been harried by dogs. Most of those sheep were huddled in fear in a corner of the field. I remember seeing some lying uh, um, dead with their throats ripped out, blood spattered on their, their white wool. Others had just um, got caught up in brambles and were stuck or, or, or stuck in a ditch. And, uh, and the others had just flopped down in complete exhaustion. Just simple pray for the dogs if they'd chosen to have them because they couldn't run any more. That's the image that Matthew wants us to have in our minds. That is what Jesus saw as he looked at the vast numbers of people before him. Actually, societies which do not have the teaching of the Bible at, at their heart, and particularly the teaching of Jesus, always actually tend to, 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 to um, make their people harassed and helpless. Atheism in particular has uh, done that. All the systematic attempts to create atheist states um, in, the, in the last hundred and plus years have resulted in monstrous impression, whether we're thinking of the, the French Revolution, which was a bit long ago, longer ago than that, or the various communist uh, states, Pol Pot's Cambodia, Mao's China. It seems that, it seems that states that try to throw off God don't liberate their people, they oppress their people. George Orwell captivated um, uh, communism very vividly in his book Animal Farm. The, fit, the pigs lead a revolution on the farm and claim they are setting up a utopian state. And a central character in that book is Boxer. He is a faithful cart horse. His motto is, I will work harder. 
and as he works harder and harder and harder for this state that he hopes that they're setting up, he finally collapses from exhaustion and though the big pigs say that they've taken him off to the vet, they take him off to the knackers. There was no ambiguity in what uh, Orwell was saying. Communism, actually atheist states, oppress, abuse their people, leave them harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Now, after the 20th century, um, when atheism finally had a chance to create nations, it's hard to avoid the conclusion that they are amongst the worst all kinds of states. Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, actually, in his book, The Great Partnership, argues that something more subtle, but in the long term, potentially just as dangerous, is, is happening in Britain at the moment. He, um, uh, first of all, um, uh, demonstrates that all the hard-won liberties and privileges that we have in our nation at the moment are actually rooted in biblical truth, especially the biblical truth that everyone is created in the image of God and therefore has innate dignity. But he says, today we're trying to hang on to the liberties that were bought without the the underlying foundation. Those underlying foundations, he says, are increasingly fading from our memory. And as our memory fades, he suggests that we are in deep danger of slipping back into the default human condition, which has over-powerful governments, increasing inequality and loss of freedom for ordinary people. Atheism cannot prevent that. Other religions seem pretty powerless, to be honest. Hinduism created the caste system, a system of oppression. Buddhism, even according to Buddhist scholars, has at best a mixed and probably more fairly a poor human rights record. Islam has never produced a free and equal society. And in the last hundred years, Judaism has had a chance at last, after 2,000 years, to create a state. But so far it has the stain of its treatment of the Palestinians on its hand. And don't, don't, don't think that Don't don't think that democracy automatically gives us freedom. Most countries in Africa are democratic. So far, democracy hasn't, um, hasn't dramatically transformed the situation. Russia is democratic and yet seems to be slipping back into, into, into totalitarianism. Those of us who are delighted about the Arab Spring in North Africa, and I am definitely one of them should not be naive in thinking that democracy will automatically create freedom. No uh, Muslim-dominated country has actually managed to produce a stable and long-term vibrant democracy, as far as I can see. No, history seems clear, actually. For all its faults, and Christianity is full of faults and has a mixed record, it is Christianity which has slowly, imperfectly, but over time, has set people free. 
And uh, actually, when you look at its failures, you see that the failures are when Christians have moved away from the fundamental teachings of Jesus in particular. And its great successes have been when the teachings of Jesus have prevailed in a society. Jesus sets people free. And what he does within this world, even more emphatically, he does as, as uh, uh, believers put their trust in Jesus and find a liberty that extends even beyond this world. When people put their, put their faith in Jesus, they are promised eternal resurrection life. And that gives believers a quality about their life that is not even oppressed by death itself. Because they belong to the living, risen Lord Jesus. Jesus sets people free. And as he looks at the crowds before him, he sees they are not free. I, I confess, I, I, on a day-to-day basis, I find it difficult to look at people with, with, with Jesus' eyes. Most people that I know seem to be prosperous, well-fed, with jobs and homes and families of one sort or another and are not doing that bad. They are still oppressed by the reality of death. In fact, as I have got to know the families on our street, I have seen a steady trickle of broken marriages. We have seen a a teenage suicide. We have seen drug abuse that led to uh, mental illness. We have seen... uh, proud, independent man become dragged down by cancer until actually he turns to us and said, could we tell uh, tell him about God? And I realise, and those are the only the things that have spilled out beyond the walls of the houses of the street that we're in. Now, This is a world, as Jesus sees it, where people are harassed and helpless. They they are like savaged sheep on a hillside. That's the first thing that Jesus saw then. The second thing that he saw... He saw hidden opportunities. Do you see that in verse 37? He said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. And, you know, in your neighbourhood, your colleague at work, your friends and family, in this city, this nation, in this world, uh, according to Jesus, they are not a lost cause. They are in big trouble, people who do not know Christ. But there is a harvest to be had. No, he's not, he's not promising that we just snap our fingers and immediately um, hundreds or thousands of people become Christians. Britain has historically um, gone through periods of reaping and, and, and periods where there has been, the Christians have had to, to break the ground, sow the seed, wait for the harvest. But he is saying that those who devote themselves to enabling people to hear the good news of Christ will have a reward. 
There is a harvest to be had, he says. He says elsewhere to his disciples, uh, one sows, another reaps. Others have done the hard work, he says to them, as they are about to be the reapers. When the harvest comes, he says, sower and reaper are glad together. There is a sense that God's people over time have the incredible, joyful job of being involved in God's great harvest of innumerable people from every tribe and nation. Open your eyes, he says. This is what I see. I see them harassed and helpless. I see that there is a harvest. Nearly 170 years ago, a group of visionary people um, took seriously that houses were being built on uh, what was then called Cowley Marsh. And so they started cottage meetings in those uh, new houses. They bought a piece of land. They eventually built a church, which became uh, Magdalen Road Church. Their visionary um, uh, uh, attitude has been yielding fruit now for 170 years. And I know they are in eternity rejoicing that this day has come. Or nearly 15 years ago, a group of people in, uh, in Magdalen Road Church determined that they would start running holiday clubs. Only a few of them are still uh, here. But out of those holiday clubs that we ran back in the 90s came a youth group. We employed Richard Brewster to run that uh, youth group and out of that youth group came uh, of the, uh, so far of the order of about nine baptisms. And those youngsters that we saw through, they've gone on to lead a university Christian union, to work as an intern in a church, they've witnessed to innumerable others. And to be honest, they're only about 20, 21 already. One of the young men mischievously posted on Facebook just recently, a few of us may have read it. He said something like this, I couldn't find it, but I can paraphrase it. He said, I feel a bit uncomfortable that I'm in love with a... I'm telling the world that I'm in love with a man. But I cannot keep it a secret. His name is Jesus. It's great, isn't it? Youngsters whom we nurtured on are now declaring to the world how great Jesus is. Lift your eyes, says Jesus. See the real state of people. See the enormous opportunity. There's something else that triggered Jesus to... uh, Um, pass on his authority to others. What he felt? He felt compassion. Did you see that in verse 36? When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them. Literally, he felt it in his guts. Notice that. It's really important. Heart comes before action. You cannot just say, I'm going to go out and try and do what Jesus has called me to do in this world if you have no heart for it. 
Jesus was motivated by a deep, heartfelt compassion for these people as he looked upon them. Still today, he sees, he, he looks on the, 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 the student labouring up, uh, um, just up the hill there, hard for success, knowing that that student who imagines now that his degree is going to win him amazing happiness and contentment in his life will realise 10 or 20 years later that that happiness was all an illusion. And Jesus has compassion on him. He sees the, the international student who has come to this country hoping that in, in Oxford they can break free of the shackles of their society and, and move into a, into a new freedom and a new joy and they, they discover that actually the bondage that they feel by and large comes with them. And he has compassion on them. And he sees the young couple so happy at the moment that they will make each other miserable, he knows, because over the years they will simply refuse to obey him. And he has compassion on them. He sees the middle-aged man who is slowly realising that his hopes for his career, his family, his wealth, they were just so much straw and he has no idea where he's going to find the contentment and happiness that he still longs for and Jesus has compassion on him. He sees the elderly woman declining in health, isolated from friends and family and facing death with no idea of the glory of resurrection life that is held out to her by the gospel. So she will die with no hope. And he has compassion on her. If if, if you're personally not yet a Christian here, Take this truth from here with enormous seriousness. Jesus has gut-wrenching compassion for you. God has compassion for you. The theologians talk confidently of the impassibility of God, that God cannot have emotions. And the Bible says rubbish. In Christ, God embodies his deep emotional commitment to lost, harassed, helpless people. Jesus mandated you, believers, to continue his ministry on the earth. Because of his compassion for this world. He loves this world with the most incredible love. Love that would send him finally to the cross so that he would die for our sins. He looks on this world, he loves it and he says, I'm going to send them. But if we're to don the mantle, if we are to, to, to... live for Christ as Christ lived on the world. We must be people who 
who have hearts that are starting to be shaped after the heart of Christ. That is what Jesus felt. He felt compassion. Then, what did Jesus do? He calls them to prayer. See that? He said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest fold. He doesn't go himself, and neither does he simply immediately send others. The first thing he does to the others is he says, pray. If you feel, I can't see the, this world the way Jesus sees it. Pray that he would give you the eyes that he has. If you, if you feel that my heart is cold, I don't, I, I don't have that sense of compassion for those people that I rub shoulders with every day. Pray. If you don't know how Jesus wants you to, to act in this world, what he's calling you to do, in what sense you will be his worker, because you are as much his worker in, the day, in your daily life as, uh, as someone like me is who's set aside full-time for, for gospel ministry. If you don't know what he wants you to do, what do you do? Pray. Pray that God would shape your heart. Pray that God would give you eyes. Pray, pray, pray that God would guide you and show you. We need to be a church that is more devoted to prayer, particularly at this moment as, a, as a, it seems new chapters are, are, are opening out for us. We have built into our church uh, life multiple opportunities for prayer on purpose. Home groups are a place of prayer. Use them. Thursday morning, some people can gather at the church to pray. 10 o'clock every, uh, every Sunday morning. We, um, um, some gather to pray. If you can come early on a Sunday to pray, do that. Pray alone. Pray with friends. We are thinking as elders about how to, how to help the church to pray hard about the vision that we have and where the Lord may be directing us, um, at, at the moment. Before we take a single step, we need to be people of prayer. So let me ask you this morning. Are you people who have caught the essence of Jesus' attitude to this world? Do you need him to open your eyes and help you to see people as they really are? Do you need him to soften your heart? You have his call to prayer. It's an extraordinary privilege to be the body of Christ. Jesus says, if you're going to be my body, then learn to be like me.